Well, today, the title of today's message is Jars of Clay. And we're going to be in first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you want to turn there in your Bible. We're going to be continuing our series uh, entitled, What is the Church? And part of this message also fits in with the fact that we are in a Mission Sunday today. Back in the late 1990s, I worked 911 for Walworth County. Now, Walworth County is the home of Lake Geneva, where a lot of wealthy people from Illinois um, would come up and enjoy the area. But Walworth County is um, an area that also has a lot of very poor people in it. And a lot of those poor people were congregated around an area uh, called Pell Lake. Now parts of Pell Lake were actually set up to be a vacation spot. They were set up with small cottages and everything, and then people would buy the cottages and it would kind of be passed down to the kids. The kids would come and live there. But the cottages were kind of too small for the family, so they would add on to the cottages to make them a little bigger. Unfortunately, some of the way that the people added on to the college probably wouldn't pass many building codes. I mean, they would kind of take uh, some plywood and, and make a, a room out of it or some um, sheet metal and make a room out of it. And you have a whole bunch of cottages there that looked like they were kind of um, slapped together by a hillbilly under the influence of LSD or meth and drinking bad moonshine. I mean, and they just were really kind of wrecked houses. We had a call one day to, um, down there to, for a person with chest pain. We went to, down a long driveway and we got to the end of a, a, long, uh, a long driveway and, and saw the house and it was really spread out house. And it was like put together with, with sheet metal, chunks of plywood, some pallets, and all this kind of stuff. And I'm looking at this thing going, is this thing even safe to enter? I mean, it was, it was so bad that the front porch was literally made out of pallets, and not like pallets with plywood on top, but pallets. The stairs were made out of pallets. You had to step on various stair, stair, uh, pallets that were made into stairs. And I was walking up to this and, and getting ready to say, um, knock on the door and say rescue, and I went to knock on the door, and I saw the door frame wasn't even nailed into anything. So I was afraid to actually knock on the door, so I was afraid it was gonna tip over. And so I just said, rescue, and I heard some commotion, and, and this really well-dressed guy comes to the door and opens the door, and he said, oh, yeah, he goes, my boyfriend's just having all kinds of chest pain, and he's, he's just, he's, he's frantic, he's, he's really worried about his boyfriend. He leads me past, the front porch is just covered with garbage and, and like, garbage bags with flies running around him and all this kind of stuff, and I go up to a door that is really, really nice door. I mean, something that would cost several hundred dollars to put on your front door, and I'm like, wow, that's kind of weird. And once you have that on the outside of the house, and you know, better. And I step into this room that it looks like I've stepped into a museum. I mean, there's just huge, fine works of art laying around. The furniture is top notch, highly polished. The whole place is immaculate. And it's set up in such a way that it just looks like Better Homes and Gardens and all those style magazines came and, and set this up. It was set out perfectly. He had all the high-end electronics, the most expensive TV of its time is sitting there on the wall. And I'm just going, what in the world? It looks like a dump on the outside. You step in and it's, it's just completely different than what I'm seeing um, from the outside. And so we found our we found our patient, and he was sitting on the, the couch, and we checked him over. It looked like he was having a medication reaction, and 
we get him in, get him into the ambulance, and it's about 25 minutes to the hospital from there. And I'm having a nice conversation with the guy. He's one of the nicest people I've ever met. Just really kind, really gentle. And we were talk, we got to talking, and I, and finally I just blurted it out. I said, "What's up with that house?" I said, "It looks like I should just like walk in there with some gasoline and toss a match, and it would improve the everybody else's property values." I mean. Come on, I mean, this place, this place is a dump on the outside, but it's so beautiful and huge on the inside. And he said, well, I did that on purpose. He said, because we have such expensive stuff in there that we don't want people constantly trying to break in. And he said, because me and, and my, my husband, apparently they got married to some other state that allows gay marriage, said, because me and my husband live in this area, nobody likes us, and so we just want to like have this this facade on the outside of our house so everybody thinks we're a bunch of crazy lunatics sitting there and nobody bugs us that way. He said, actually, we're rather wealthy. He said, did you see that painting that was behind me on the couch? I said, yeah. I said, it was huge, it was beautiful. He goes, that's worth over half a million dollars. He said, the house, when we, when we had it built before we put all the junk around it, is worth $750,000. He goes, me and my boyfriend together or my husband together, are worth over $10 million. He said, but we just have this facade out there to keep the, the mean people away. And I was reminded of this man in his house when I was praying about what to preach about this Sunday, and I found this scripture that talks about a treasure in a jar of clay. And again, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that through this message we can see just how important you are in our lives. That indeed, you have placed a treasure inside of this jar of clay we call our human bodies. Father God, help us to come into greater appreciation of that and how you use even the church that you place this treasure in these jars of clay, how you can use the church to impact a community and a world, Father. Lord, I ask this in your name. Amen. We as Christians have a treasure surrounded by something that looks relatively weak and relatively worthless. In fact, we carry within us the most important and valuable commodity in the entire universe, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. And as I meditated on this scripture this week, it brought, I brought the same questions to God that I had brought to that man in the ambulance. Why would you surround something so beautiful, something so valuable, something so intimate and intrinsic to who you are with something ugly and weak like humanity has been throughout history? 
Why, God? Why would you gamble your entire plan of salvation on something so fallible as human, as human beings? Why would you place the greatest treasure in the universe and what the Bible calls jars of clay? Well, I came up with a few answers this morning. And the first answer is to show the life of Jesus. We kind of romanticize the time that Jesus spent on this earth sometimes. But if you really read and you really study the Gospels, even when Jesus did all of his good things, he was often severely criticized and threatened with death for doing it. The verse that we just read, that we are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed, that is a description of Jesus' life here on earth. It's saying that Jesus went through the same frustrations, the same sufferings, the same sicknesses, the same pain, both emotional and physical, that we did and that we do go through today. The Bible is very clear about that. If you look at Hebrews 4.15, by the way, the fact that Hebrews is in the Bible proves that Jesus drank coffee. I just want to thank you for that joke, Tammy. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. This is referring to Jesus. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And that's why part of this idea of treasures in jars of clay is so vital to our walk with God. It's so vital to our usefulness to the kingdom because... Because it points out this wrong idea that we have, particularly sometimes in the Pentecostal and the Spirit-led church, that if we are not rocking around in constant peace and constant blessing all the time, singing kumbaya, that somehow we're missing God. That's why the Bible says that we carry within us the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be shown with us. Well, what was the life of Jesus like? How did our great high priest experience this thing called life? You know, Jesus, we, we look at all of his good stuff. We look at all the, the ways he showed patience, all the ways he showed love, all the ways that he gave us the truth of the gospel. But you also have to remember that occasionally he was also frustrated. And he would show frustration with people. If you remember in the Bible, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus has this incredible experience where he brings his three closest friends Peter, John, and James up into the mountain and he rips apart our reality and steps into heaven for a few minutes. And he, gets, he shows his three best friends what he's going to look like after the resurrection and what they will get to experience someday. And he closes that gate again and brings them back down the hill only to find the other disciples botching the ministry. He gets down off the mountain from being in heaven and watches his disciples messing up what should have been a simple healing what should have been even a simple exorcism. All they would have had to do is say, in Jesus' name, be gone from this little boy and heal this boy of his seizures. But because Jesus left them and Jesus was not in sight, their faith failed them. And they were not able to do this. And this is what Jesus says to them. You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Now, that's not Jesus giving them a big hug and saying it's going to be okay. This is Jesus going, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Why can't you just 
Believe in me. After all you've seen, after all you've heard, you still can't believe that I am who I say I am. Jesus also suffered physically. Keep in mind that both the Bible, most importantly, and Christian theology teaches us that he was fully human and fully man. It's called the hypostatic union in, in theological terms. He suffered just as we did. Hebrews said he was tried in every way that we are. That means that Jesus could have gotten colds. He could have gotten the flu growing up. Jesus probably missed a nail once or twice to smack his thumb with a hammer. I kind of did the same thing here. You see there's black on my thumb? He probably smacked his thumb once in a while. He probably got splinters on occasion. He was most likely made fun of growing up because everybody in Nazareth knew he wasn't the true son of Joseph. Everybody knew that. Nobody had forgotten that. The Bible says he wasn't even particularly good looking. Isaiah said that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him and nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Maybe that's why he was single, I don't know. Jesus had the same human sufferings that we all did. And then add on to that everything he did in his role to the, as the Son of God. As the Son of God, he was driven into the desert with no food or drink for 40 days and tempted directly by Satan, and yet he overcame it. Satan came back at the more opportune time in the Garden of Gethsemane and endured the full frontal assault of Satan himself and still overcame that. He overcame his beatings. Everybody ever seen the Passion of the Christ? That's a pretty graphic representation. Even John, Pope John Paul said, yes, that is the way it was. He was so moved by seeing that movie and seeing the beating and the, the skin ripping out of, of the actor, James Caviezel, and, and enduring everything he had to endure for us. And after receiving a beating that should have killed anybody, he now has to hang, suffocating to death, completely naked before the world. And like all of us will someday, Jesus also died. But that wasn't the end of the story. He rose again in victory, breaking the power of sin and death for all who would surrender their lives and follow him. All this Jesus did to show his victorious life living within us as we die to ourselves moment by moment, year after year, to our old way of life and our old way of thinking. And let our hearts be renewed by the fullness of Jesus' presence living within us. Now how do we do this and why do we do this? How do we die to ourselves either day or every day? What else does this treasure of or treasure in jars of clay represent to us? Well, it shows the world the power of God. Now, you and I, when we got saved, we weren't necessarily made on this earth completely holy. In God's sight, we were made completely holy through the blood of Jesus. But realistically, in our lives, it's been a progression, hasn't it? as we've laid down the old self and continue to walk with Jesus, continue to allow him to shape us and mold us and take away all that junk of the world. You know, I had an interesting way of seeing this recently when our granddaughter visited. She's 14 months old now and running all over the house. And like most children her age, she gets into everything. And I remember that Tammy and Haley went shopping and they left me there to watch her by myself. And she lived which is evidence of God's grace right there. But I remember Emmy 
we have some glass figurines on the bookcase, and she got, I could, I could see, I could see her looking at it, and I could see the wheels turning in her eyes, like, ooh, shiny. And she starts walking toward it, and I said, Emmy, no. And she looked back at me, and she smiled, and kept going kind of like this. And I said, Emmy, no. And she gets toward the bookcase, she starts reaching up, and I said, Emmy, no. And she's like, at me, kind of like her grandma. Uh, <laughs> stomps her foot, and then starts running toward it. And I said, Emmy, come right here right now. And she's running faster, and I had to run and, and get it before she shattered this glass all over the place. Doesn't this describe kind of how you and I are with God sometimes? You know, we get saved and God starts to change the desires of our hearts toward heavenly things. But sometimes the things of this world have such a hold on us. They're so attractive, so appealing, and so pleasurable that we can't help to be drawn to them. We see the shiny things of this world and we kind of slowly edge toward us. And the Holy Spirit says, no, that's not for you. I have called you away from that. That is not for you. You know, we kind of spiritually pout a little bit. And we look back toward the thing we want. We edge a little bit closer to it. And we hear the Holy Spirit say, No! You know, we kind of look at it again and we say, Hmm, did God really say, I can't have that? And that's when the Holy Spirit says, No, no, come away with me. I'm going to take away that thing if you just come away from me. But sometimes it's also when many of the times we turn away and we run toward the world. And I use these examples to point out that it's incredible to think that God would place the gospel of Jesus Christ, the most valuable treasure in all creation, within essentially all of us are spiritual toddlers. But he did this to show his power, that his power is living within us. Our God mocks all the powers of earth and hell by putting this treasure in His very presence. The very presence, by the way, in heaven that is guarded by seraphim and cherubim. This very presence, this gospel, within each and every one of us, within worthless jars of clay, spiritual toddlers, so that His, his power may be shown to the entire world. God is in essence saying, my power and my glory are so great that I can use even these spiritual infants to fulfill my plan and purpose for creation. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't that blow your mind? I know for me it brings to mind the words of one of my favorite hymns that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. And by giving us the life of Jesus and showing us the power of God, this treasure helps us to teach us our position within the kingdom. In the Old Testament, when you read it, there's only a select few that got to really experience God. A few faithful leaders, some kings, some prophets, and a couple of high priests, and that was it. And that's kind of the view I grew up with. Most of you know I attended a Lutheran church growing up. I would see the pastors in their robes and their stoles standing before the congregation leading worship. 
I got to see it up close more as an altar, altar boy when I was in confirmation classes. We were required to be altar boys, and I got to see that firsthand and, and see how they uh, prepared themselves to go out and minister to people. And I used to think that, man, that is so awesome, that they have such an awesome relationship with God that, you know, they have like the e-ticket right to heaven, straight to heaven, you know, and God has called just these couple people to have a relationship with God that was beyond the rest of us. The church that I got saved in was a bit more on the charismatic side, to say the least, and there was a lot of talk about anointing. And in a roundabout way, that kind of attitude existed there also. There was a lot of focus on how God blessed certain people with special gifts and powers and anointings that other people didn't have or didn't earn because they haven't paid the price of sacrifice. They hadn't prayed enough or they hadn't given enough or they haven't been faithful enough to receive this blessing from God. In fact, there was so much wrong teaching about the word anointing that for years I refused to preach about it. And, but I, I believe in the anointing. At that church, we had a gym that was attached to the building. And there was a, a large window over the top where you could look from the offices over the top of the gym that, that connected you to the conference room. And I would be walking across the church late at night. Maybe I was there cleaning. Maybe I was there doing men's ministry or whatever. But I would walk across at night across the catwalk um, over the top of the gym and look into that window in the office and see the pastor having meetings with the elders or having meetings with the board and, and seeing them walking around with their arms up and praying and thinking, man, wouldn't that be so great to be that blessed by God, to carry that kind of anointing and that kind of fellowship and that kind of relationship with Him, that I could have that kind of, of relationship and assurance of, of my salvation in God that the pastors and the elders have. I used to think that these kind of spiritual experiences were for those select few men and women that God had chosen. In other words, the anointed ones. And then I moved toward being in ministry. And that kind of thinking in my own mind held me back a little bit. I used to think that sometimes when I had to stand up and preach or stand up and pray or, or do something in the ministry that somehow I must be faking it. Because I didn't seem like I was as anointed as some of these people. I wasn't as well-spoken. I wasn't as confident in, in my abilities to lead and to preach. You know, I thought maybe I need to pray more. Maybe I need to give more. Maybe I need to just serve better and serve more than everybody else. And I can earn this exalted position myself. I'd buy books on revival and I'd study how they came about. And it was always through prayer. So I would spend hours and hours in prayer at times. But over the years... God has gotten me away from this mindset, and he's taught me the truth. All people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus have this same treasure in the jar of clay that is called their heart. This may be you today. Maybe you've been held back in your spiritual walk with God through the false belief that God cannot nor will not use you. Maybe because of something you've done in the past or something that is in your life in the present. Let me, or listen closely from what I'm about to say to you. We all have the same access to the throne of heaven. Amen. We all have the potential to have the same power flowing through us that Jesus did. We all have the same chance to be mightily used by God to bring the gospel to the world that desperately needs it. And you know how God taught me this? 
If you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. I'm going to share with you one of my life verses that describes me to a T. Chapter 12, Paul confesses that he's going through a rough time. He had such a heart for ministry. He wanted to be out there in the field proclaiming the gospel, but he constantly was being held back by some sort of physical illness. Some people believe that it was a problem with his eyes, that he would go through momentary, or, um, occasional lapses of blindness because of what happened to him on the Damascus Road. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed that God would take it away. And you can hear the frustration in his voice when you read the story. But then God's reply makes all of that make sense. Verse 9, But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know, this treasure that's in this jar of clay can only be appreciated when God shines his light on it and through it. Anything we do or try to improve on it or make it more attractive to the world only ruins its true value. The true gospel is about a suffering Savior. It's about a bloody cross. It's about a brutal death because of your sins and mine. But it's also about a glorious and beautiful resurrection. And it's about lives changed by the power of Jesus Christ. And God willing, even a whole city or country, state, nation, or world can be saved as we allow God to continue to reveal this treasure within each one of our hearts. I want to leave us with a final thought about how this fits in with our current series we are in, how, or what is the church. The church is made up of people. And there's a saying out there that says there's no such thing as a perfect church, and if there was a such a thing as a perfect church, it would stop being perfect if you went to it. I disagree. You see, we've accepted the lie that the perfect church is one where no problems exist. I strongly disagree, and most importantly, so does the Bible. The perfect church is going to be messy. Pastors and church members and church boards need to stop fearing or avoiding conflict. The perfect church will have strife and disagreement in it. The perfect church will have people that might not even like each other. The per because the perfect church needs to be a broken church before God. Because only then will our God's power be shown in its completeness and made perfect within our weakness. Amen? Let's all stand. Father God, I just ask, Lord, that as we enter back into a time of worship this morning, that we will glory in our weaknesses, that we won't continually try to hide them, but we will accept them, that we will see them as avenues for your glory to shine through our lives. We can see them as ways that we can testify before those that are in our lives that even though I struggle with this, God is still forgiving me. God is still working on me. God is still so faithful to complete the work that he started in Christ Jesus.
And Father, as we enter back into a time of worship, I ask, Father, that the facades that we have in life, those faces we put on at church and all those barriers and secrets that we try to keep from the world will just be laid bare. That we would trust and love one another so much that we would trust and love each other even with our deepest and darkest secrets. So that your power and your love and your mercy may be shown for what it is. The greatest commodity in the universe. Father, bless us now as we go back into a time of worship.